All right, good evening, everyone. Although our service time obviously has changed, our format really has not, except for two small things. Uh, one, we're going to be regularly beginning the service right at six, uh, so the youth group has time for their thing, but can also join us for worship. And two, also because of the youth group, we're going to try and be finished up consistently by 7.30, uh, so, so that parents and, and children can be reunited. Um, we pick up after a short hiatus in the book of Jeremiah, and we're going to begin tonight in chapter 32. If you can think all the way back to the first chapter of Jeremiah, where we find Jeremiah's call, he's given a two-part ministry. He's both to tear down and to build. He's both to root up and to plant. But the building and the planting has only been in the margins and the whispers of the book so far. But now we get to a section of Jeremiah that commentators for a long time have called the Book of Consolation. These chapters that we're looking at tonight all focus on when God will again build what he's torn down, when he will replant what he's uprooted. Uh, it is about restoration uh, and redemption and the good things that are to come on the other side of the judgment um, that God is bringing upon his people. And the first place that is demonstrated in the text for us uh, is in another one of these prophetic lived out parables where Jeremiah doesn't just speak the word of God, but he acts it out to make it clear. Uh, and so this is what happens here in chapter 32. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was at the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. Okay, and so this is right at the cusp of the final judgment. It's this siege with a slight respite in the middle that lasts about 18 months and ends with the end of Zedekiah's reign, with the end of Zedekiah's ability to see as the king of Babylon puts out both his eyes, with the end of the temple, the end of Jerusalem, and the great deportation of God's people into exile in Babylon. This is right on the edge of that. We find Jeremiah imprisoned, and we're told why in verse 3, for Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to, to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you will not succeed. So he says, why are you giving this pessimistic end, uh, you know, inevitable end message? Now, Zedekiah is not just offended by this, he's thinking strategically, right? During a siege, what he needs most is for the uh, spirits of his own city, of those who are surrounded in Jerusalem, to stay high. 
But Jeremiah is walking around saying, it's already over, you might as well give up, it's inescapable, right? It's hard to maintain good morale in your soldiers when defeat is being proclaimed constantly as inevitable. So he silences Jeremiah by putting him in prison. And so he's criticized Jeremiah's ministry, and Jeremiah tells us here what's going on. He said, verse 6, the word of the Lord came to me, behold... Hanamel, the son of Shalem, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Okay, and so he gets this warning, this word from the Lord that a relative of his is going to come with a business proposal. In fact, it's not just a business proposal. His uncle wants him to operate as a kinsman redeemer and buy back the land that belonged to their family that had been lost uh, maybe through just normal sale or some sort of economic downturn. However, this is in Anathoth, which is both Jeremiah's hometown and outside the siege walls. Okay? And so this business deal is a sketchy one because Jeremiah, who says this is the end of Jerusalem and all of Judea, is being offered to buy land that is already being trampled by enemies. Okay? It doesn't really make any sense, which is probably why God takes the time to warn him up front. Because Jeremiah's natural response if his uncle came and pitched this, you know, would be similar of somebody who said they had a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you, right? It's, it's just a silly offer. It doesn't make any sense. But God warns him up front because God is actually doing something. And so, just as he was told in verse 8, Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord, that's important, and said to me, buy my field that is Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours, buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. You see, this is one of the things that God is always faithful to do when he's going to do something abnormal. If you remember when Peter is approached by the men who Cornelius, a Roman centurion, sends to bring him to the household of Cornelius, a place that a respectable Jew like Peter would never find himself in, as he makes very explicit in Acts chapter 9 and 10. Uh, when, When God is doing that, to show that he's in the work, remember he gives Peter both a vision of the animals of all types, both clean and unclean, descending on a sheet. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. No, not so, Lord, I wouldn't do such a thing. And he says, do not call unclean what I have cleansed. And that happens three times, and on top of that, when the doorbell rings, and Peter goes, I wonder who that is, God speaks directly to him, and he says, I have sent these people, you are to go with him, right? He warns him up front because he's doing something unbelievable. And so here, Jeremiah gets the message, but just because he knows that this is what God is doing doesn't mean he knows why God is doing it, and for that we have to keep reading verse 9. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, I sealed it, I got witnesses and weighed the money on the scales, and then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanmel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. 
Okay, and so he goes through all of the official channels of those days of going through purchasing. It's not escrow and inspections like we would do today. Um, instead, it involves witnesses and a duplicate copy of the uh, bill of sale, if you will. One that was the open copy that was just to be kept open and out of an envelope so it could be seen and so everybody would know that it was happened. And then also a sealed copy. The sealed copy would be kept sealed so that if this property ever became questioned, they could break the seal and see that for the whole time it had been sealed away, this is actually what the copy said. Uh, this idea of a sealed document and revealed document is actually part of Jeremiah's ministry. God uses it to make some points as well, but here we see it in the purchase of the land. So he goes through all the process. He reaches into his pocket and spends 17 shekels of silver for land that is currently occupied and will not be taken back because uh, Judea is going to be sacked. Um, and then here, verse 13, he charged Baruch in the presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of the hosts, God of Israel, take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Okay, and so he's buying this land as a prophetic pointing past the judgment, past the exile that he's already told us in this book is going to last for 70 years, basically an entire human lifespan. And he says, but there will come a time again where this property will be in Israel's hand, so set aside this deed because this land will be redeemed to our family. Now, remember, Jeremiah has no wife and no children, it's part of his prophetic calling. So this isn't going to be of any service to his line directly, it is merely a prophetic exclamation. Remember that Jeremiah has been thrown in prison because of the discouragement that he's bringing on the soldiers, but this, of course, is a message of hope. It's an action that says, on the other side of exile is God's promise to return us to the land, and in those days there will be houses and fields and vineyards. Okay. And so God's plan is a plan of judgment, but not merely a plan of judgment. Like I said, this is part of the section of Jeremiah we call the book of consolation. Now, he goes through all these things, but it doesn't mean that he personally comprehends what's going on. And so after he's done this, he prays, verse 16. After I'd given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, oh, Lord God... It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing's too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of the fathers and to the children after them, O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Great in counsel, mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You've shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, and to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. And you gave them this land which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered it and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. 
They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans who were fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Okay? So basically, he reviews all of Israel's history as well as God's credentials. God, the whole land is yours. You made everything. You're the one who does signs and wonders. You brought us miraculously out of Egypt. You gave us this land. You continued to witness to your people as they went astray. And now everything you said would come to pass has come to pass upon them. Yet, verse 25, you, O Lord God, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Now notice, that's the language Jeremiah has just addressed God with. He says, is anything too hard for you? And God reminds him, he's like, you said it, not me. Is this possibility that you've presented really too challenging for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, verse 28, behold, I'm giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans and in the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. That's not new information. That's just reiterating what Jeremiah has been saying now for decades. Verse 29, the Chaldeans who are fighting against this city shall come and set this city on fire and burn it with the houses on whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by their work of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day, so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger. Their kings and their officials, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In other words, God starts here by saying, that's right. It's all being destroyed, and it's because they have provoked me to anger. And he basically, in the same words of Jeremiah's ministry, walks through the whole process of how they came to where they are right now in the midst of this siege. He finishes here in verse 33, They have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Himmon to offer up the sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter my mind, just that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. In other words, he says, here is the history, here's where the blame is, right? He says, I'm not the one that's turned away from Israel. I haven't abandoned Israel. That's not what's happening here. They have turned away from me. Persistently, they have plugged their ears when I've spoken. Then we get to the good news, verse 36. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city which you say is given into the hands of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence, behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation, I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. 
I love the way that this reads because he says, it's you who've brought this upon you. It's you who've done these, all, all these things. And then he doesn't say, therefore, it's you who needs to set things right. It's you who's going to have to figure out how to find your way home. He says, no, I am going to do these things. God's character is not enslaved to our character. His faithfulness is not limited by our behavior. And he will, as uh, Jeremiah himself said earlier, be just and bring every man what he deserves. But he's also going to do something more than that. Justice will come, but so will grace. And again here he evokes what he called in chapter 31 the new covenant. Okay? This new thing that God's going to do. Um, and he says that it will fulfill Israel's destiny, the one that they've been uh, set up for since the book of Exodus, verse 38, they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I like the tension in that verse, that they would fear me for their own good, right? I think sometimes we see those as being in tension, that if God is a God that we fear, then he doesn't have our best interest in mind. Either he is a benevolent God or he is a terrible God. And I don't mean terrible in the sense of like awful at his job. I mean in like the uh, Oz the Great and Terrible sense, right? Um, but the Bible maintains that the two go together. In fact, Proverbs, after laying out an entire book devoted to the goodness and the benefit and the blessing of wisdom, says what is the beginning of all wisdom? The fear of the Lord. Right? The two go hand in hand. Verse 40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. So chapter 31 calls it the new covenant. It's different than the old covenant. The old covenant was a covenant of stone. This is a covenant of flesh. The old covenant was a covenant externally. Here it's internal, but now he calls it the everlasting covenant. It's a covenant forever. It's an eternal covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Here, this is the work that God likes to do. With all his heart, with all his soul, with all that he is, he will plant them in the land in faithfulness. And so, yes, Jeremiah, I'm going to tear down Jerusalem, but I'm also going to rebuild it. Yes, I'm going to uproot Israel, but I'm also going to replant them with all my heart and soul. Verse 42, for thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon the people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Now that's fascinating to me because here God makes the litmus test of his future promise keeping his present judgment. He says, just as I was faithful to bring on you the judgment that you deserved, so you can trust my faithfulness in the promises that I'm making of what I'm going to do, the good things that I'm going to do. Just as I've brought disasters, so I will bring upon them the good that I promised them. God is a keeper of his word. Verse 43, fields shall be bought in this land, of which you are saying it's a desolation without man or beast. It's given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money, 
and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev, for I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. And so there is good news after the bad news. And that continues on in chapter 33. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the guard. So relatively close to this business transaction, during the same siege of Israel, God comes and he gives him another message. Verse 2, thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah that were torn down to make a defense against the siege mounds against the sword. They are coming in to fight against the Chaldeans and to fill them with the dead bodies of men whom I shall strike down in my anger and my wrath. For I have hidden my face from this city because of all their evil. Again, he speaks of this destruction, right? He says the houses that have been torn down to bolster up the, the walls, they're going to stay that way. They're not going to be rebuilt right away. In fact, they're going to become tombs for the dead because the walls are going to be breached. The city's going to be overwhelmed. The Babylonians are going to win. But notice, going back to verse 2, the introduction God gives to himself here. Who is the one who's going to do this? Verse 2, the Lord who made the earth and who formed it to establish it. God's ultimate plan, his ultimate purpose is to build. He's a former, he's a maker, he's an establisher. But as we know, sometimes a remodel requires destruction before construction. But what he's pointing to is basically saying that what you're going through right now, Israel, has a purpose and an intention. As it says uh, in Jeremiah 29, for Israel, I've got a plan for you. And it's a plan to give you hope and a future. But that plan is exile. They're going to go through it, but he reminds them, he says, this destruction is happening, but I am the former, I'm the filler, I'm the one who both made the earth and populated it with life. That's who I am. And so he says, yes, destruction is coming, but notice verse 6, this same city, behold, I will bring it to health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them abundance and prosperity and security. You know, some of the ways that we go about medicine involve bringing harm for the sake of bringing healing. Sometimes we take very drastic measures. Uh, chemo, for example, is, is death, liquid death, attacking our bodies and just hoping they hold out longer than the cancer that will kill us. But the goal is towards health and healing. The goal of a cancer doctor is never just to kill the cancer. It's to save the patient, right? God is in the same business. He's the same way, and now he needs willing participants. He needs good patience for that. He needs people who will respond and react, and that's been part of the problem is God's interest has always been to restore Israel, but they're not on the same page yet. And so here he says it's health and healing that's coming. Verse 7, I'll restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and their rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, 
and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for this. And so God is bringing judgment on Jerusalem for the sake of his name because he's a just God because he won't tolerate the wickedness of Israel, because the fact that they're aligned with God doesn't excuse them in their behavior. But he's also going to use this abundant blessing, this new covenant, the grace he brings to make a name and a glory for himself through Israel. Uh, Even here, his plans for Israel are international in nature. They're beyond Israel. Verse 10, thus says the Lord in the place of which you say it is a waste, without man or beast in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of bridegroom, the voice of the bride and the voice of those singing as they bring their thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts for the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Earlier Jeremiah had said, your temple is worthless. It doesn't matter. Your sacrifices are in vain because of the wickedness that happens throughout your land. But here he says there's coming a time where even that temple will be restored, rebuilt. Worship will be heard in its presence again. Thanksgiving will be proclaimed loudly in its courts. Verse 12, thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place that is a waste without man or beast in all the cities, there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks in the cities of the hill country. In the cities of the Shephelah, in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, flocks shall again pass under the hand of the one who counts them, says the Lord. Okay, the the imagery of that last sentence is of a shepherd who's bringing his sheep at the end of the day, and he knows them all by name or by number, and he counts them as they pass in through the gated area to their safekeeping, right? not one being unaccounted for. And he says that's going to happen in the land again. Shepherds are going to have the security and the permanence to set up their little pens to keep their sheep in by night. But it'd be pretty obvious to assume that God is using this imagery to talk about himself, right? He is the shepherd. And it's going to come to a time again where he counts head by head all of Israel. Verse 14, behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now, this is already a promise we've encountered. And we see this sometimes in the prophets where there will be refrains or repeated promises promises. And so we're already familiar with the righteous branch that would spring up from the line of David. In fact, we were told earlier that his name would be Jehovah is righteous, which is a playoff the current king as Jeremiah is sitting in prison. His name is Zedekiah, which is righteous is Yah. And so his name is almost, but the real king The real line of David, the real righteous branch, the real Jehovah is our righteousness is to come. We've already heard about this though, but here's what's new. Notice verse 16. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That's not just going to be the name of the righteous branch of the descendant of David, of the Messiah, but it's going to become the identity of Jerusalem. It speaks here of a people who take the name 
of the promised one. And there's this relationship. That's why when we get to the new Jerusalem at the end of the book of Revelation, the great emphasis in what makes that city a city, or what, if, if you want to put it this way in a Christian perspective, what makes heaven heaven, is that we finally dwell with Jesus, that he is in the midst of his people, like a groom and his bride, they are together forever, and the bride takes the name of her husband. And so it's not just God's righteousness that is manifest. When we look at Jesus and we say, he is the Lord, our righteousness, we mean something very specific, something very significant. We mean that Jesus was the very righteousness of God, fully perfect, completely without sin, unmarred by evil. But here it speaks of a people who have taken that righteousness upon themselves, and in the words of Martin Luther, it's alien righteousness. It's not we also are righteous, it's the Lord has become our righteousness. We are the righteousness of God. This is why Paul in first or excuse me in 2 Corinthians 5 says, "He who knew no sin, the Lord our righteousness, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God." Okay? And so what God is doing in this Messiah in Jesus Christ is not just covering up and bringing about forgiveness, but remaking us in the image of Christ, bringing about his own righteousness in our flesh and blood, making us like him. And that's what Jeremiah speaks of here. He continues, verse 17, for thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings and to burnt grain offerings and to make sacrifices forever. Now, just last week or the week before, we saw a similar pairing of this coming king, as well as it said, and that king uh, will, will be able to enter fully into my presence, which is not royal language in the Old Testament, it's priestly language. Right? The high priest could enter all the way into the Holy of Holies. And what happens when kings in the Old Testament say, well, I can do that too because I'm the king? It doesn't go so well, right? But here it speaks of almost a joining of the king from the line of David and the priesthood and both of them being significantly without lack. That what God began in Levi and in the tribe of Judah, will be continued perpetually. And Hebrews makes clear that both of these are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the one from the order of Melchizedek who has replaced the priesthood of the Levitical reign. He's not merely our king, but our great high priest as well. And even in here in Jeremiah, we see those two joined together. <clears throat> Never to lack again. Verse 19, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that the day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. Okay. And so he says this covenant is so solid, this promise is so faithful that it's going to outlast the reality that we call sunlight and darkness, right? Day and night. He says, as long as creation continues to function as it always has, I will keep my promises here. In fact, he goes further, verse 22, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, 
and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant and the Levitical priests who minister to me. Now notice that. That goes above and beyond, right? It's not just saying there will always be a Levite. There will always be one from the line of David. He says, I'm going to multiply these lines so that they number greater than the stars, greater than the sands of the sea. Does that sound familiar? Suddenly, the promise God gives to Abraham that his descendants will be abundant in these ways is now all aligned under Levi and Judah, all aligned under David and the high priestly line. This is why when we get to the New Testament, we find... um, Uh, what Martin Luther called the priesthood of all believers. That it's not just that we have a great high priest, and it's not just that we have a great king in Jesus Christ, but he brings us into that rule and reign with him. And he ordains us and calls us into the ministry as priests. That's why in our church, we don't use the language of priests for what I do or what the other pastors do. We don't find that language being used in the New Testament at all uh, of individual or specific roles. You don't need a mediator to confess your sins or someone to make sacrifices for you. You have the great high priest, the sole mediator between God and man, but you've also been enlisted into the holy service of God and become, as Israel was destined to become, a kingdom of priests. We all have that role both to represent people to God and God to the people. We've been brought into the ministry. And that's what Jeremiah is talking about here. Now again, some would look at this and go, see, Israel blows it. God brings about Jesus. He sets the Jewish people, the nation of Israel aside, and he instead fulfills his promise in a greater way that the Old Testament saints never foresaw in the church. And so there is no plan, no future for Israel that hasn't been spiritually fulfilled in Jesus Christ and is now being fully experienced by the church. However, just as we saw earlier when the new covenant was mentioned in 31, look at verse 23. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose Thus they have despised my people so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Now pause there. In the context, we might read those two clans as being Levi and Judah. But when you read it right in this verse here and it mentions a nation, the two clans here are Israel and Judah, the same pairing that we've encountered throughout the book of Jeremiah. So here he's talking about the end of the nation of Israel. And remember, the northern tribes, about a hundred years before right now, have already been removed from the land. Okay, So Israel, in one sense, is already broken. But God speaks to this, verse 25, thus says the Lord, If I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob, and David, my servant, will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and I will have mercy on them. And so again, just as we saw earlier, there is still a plan and a promise for the nation of Israel. And when we get to the book of Romans, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul lays out what God is doing now as he focuses on what Paul calls the time of the Gentiles. As the church is growing and people are being grafted into the promises and the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 and the eternal covenant of Jeremiah 32, that's promises for you. 
Those things, the relationship that God offers there, you can have fully now. But he still has mercy planned for Israel. And as Paul points out, if in their hardening, God accomplished such a great thing as the reality of this international and universal church, how much more glorious will be their restoration? And so there's still a plan. And here in Jeremiah, even as the new covenant is announced, it's reiterated, just as it was in chapter 31, that God is not done with Israel and that they will come to know the Messiah that we already know but was of them and for them and initially proclaimed by members of their nation, right? All the apostles were Jewish. Paul, Barnabas, James, John, Peter. They were the ones who Jesus came to. They were the ones who proclaimed him to the ends of the earth. And eventually, God will restore the fortunes of Israel, will deal with them again and reveal to them that their long-awaited Messiah has already come and has come again in Jesus Christ. Chapter 34. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army and all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion and all the people were fighting against Jerusalem and all of its cities. You hear all the alls there? Okay. It, it emphasizes how big the army is and how bad the situation is in Jerusalem. And then the message, verse 2, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Go speak to Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm giving this city into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. You shall not escape his hand, but shall surely be captured and delivered into his hand. You shall see the king of Babylon eye to eye and speak with him face to face, and you shall go over to Babylon. Yet... Hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you. You shall not die by the sword. You shall die in peace. And as spices were burned for your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so people shall burn spices for you and a lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have spoken the word, declares the Lord. And so he says, the destruction is coming, but there is a way out for you, Zedekiah. You can still have a good ending. And as we're going to see, that's going to require surrender. What Jeremiah is coming to do is basically saying, there's no escaping God's judgment here, but it can be limited by your full surrender to it. And by surrendering to Nebuchadnezzar, you're surrendering to the just punishment of God. And he says, in that case, your life will be spared and your future will still maintain the auspices of royalty. That's the idea of the incense being offered, just like it was for your fathers. You'll still be remembered as a king. You'll still be honored as a king. You'll die in your old age, still respected, and there will still be people to mourn you. Okay? But we need to understand here that the words of Jeremiah are conditional. This will be the case if Zedekiah surrenders. Because this is not what actually happens to Zedekiah. He refuses to surrender he holds out tooth and nail until Babylon wins out, and then he does meet the king of Babylon face to face and eye to eye. And Nebuchadnezzar takes all of his sons, and he kills them in front of him, and then he puts out his eyes, and he takes him in chain to Babylon, and he dies there. But Jeremiah comes right at the last minute and says, it's not too late for you to do the right thing. 
Verse 6, Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah the king of Judah in Jerusalem when the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem against all of the cities of Judah that were left, Lachish and Azekah, for these were the only fortified cities of Judah that remained. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. Okay, now pause. We move along here, and Jeremiah comes to address a new development in Jerusalem. And what it tells us uh, is, happens is that Zedekiah puts out a royal proclamation that all of the Jews should set free their Jewish brethren that are enslaved. Now, first and foremost, according to the Old Testament law in the book of Deuteronomy, they were not allowed to enslave in perpetuity their own countrymen. Okay. There was the possibility that you could get into such dire straits that you would sell yourself into indentured servitude. But even that was limited for the Jews for only six years. Okay. No matter how deep the debt was, six years would pay it and then they were to be set free. But at this point in Israel's history, apparently, some of this slavery had become permanent and total. Okay. Now, there are no occasions before this where Jeremiah addresses this specific issue. We have seen him say, look, you don't keep the Sabbath like you're supposed to if you would just keep the Sabbath, right? He's put his finger on other issues. But this one seems to come from Zedekiah's own heart, and he goes, maybe a way that I can ease things up and stop this from happening, maybe a way we can obey the Lord is to proclaim freedom. Now, Zedekiah is a clever guy, so there might be more going on here than that. Okay. What do you need when Jerusalem is surrounded by your enemies in a siege? Do you need servants to clean your house, or do you need more soldiers? But you're not very inclined are you to fight for your masters who are the captives of your life when even exile is freedom in comparison to the way you're living right now and so it may be a shrewd decision uh, but it also is one that aligns with the old testament law and it shows at the very least that zedekiah is at the end of his rope and he's scrambling for ways to avoid the inevitable and so his plan is proclaim set free your Jewish slaves, your brother. And verse 10, they obeyed. The officials and all the people who had entered into covenant, that everyone would set free his slaves, male or female, that they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. Okay. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves that they'd set free and brought them into subjection of slaves. Now, there's a missing detail there that we get later in the chapter that we need for context. Look down at verse 21. Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials I will give into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of the army of king of Babylon, which has withdrawn from you. Okay? So here's what happens. During this siege, for an unknown reason, Babylon leaves. And during this pause, Zedekiah goes, it's over. And then he goes back on his word against these slaves and says, eh, it's not permanent freedom, actually. You still belong to us. Okay. That's what happens. In fact, again, you can see it in verse 
uh, verse 11, but afterward they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free and brought them into subjection as slaves. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers. He says, all right, you made a covenant to release your slaves. You remember the covenant that I made with your fathers, right? I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, okay, so what does he say here? I made a covenant for you that was a covenant of freedom. You were slaves to Egypt, and I set you free, and part of the deal was, uh, verse 14, at the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty each to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. So not only did they make this promise to one another and to their slaves, they made it in the temple, okay, in, in the presence of God, if you will. Verse 16, but then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves whom you'd set free according to their desire and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you've not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence and to famine, declares the Lord. He says, all right, well, I'm going to set you free to judgment then. And this shouldn't surprise us because one of the things that Jeremiah says earlier is if somebody is wickedly behaving and repents, will God bring the judgment he threatens upon him? And God says, no. No, I won't do that. That's the contention in the book of Jonah. Jonah comes in and he only has one message. The countdown clock has started, 40 days and then judgment. But the entire city rises up under a proclamation of the king in mourning and they holistically and completely repent. And Jonah's mad because judgment doesn't come. But Jeremiah goes on and he says, not only, not only will I not judge him who repents, but the one who repents and then goes back, I will go back and judge. Right? In other words, God is not interested in our promises and our, our parades of our own righteousness, he keeps watching. We might close the curtain and say, all right, that's over, act over, but God sees all things. And so he sees them going right back to this, and he, what is he saying? He says, your repentance was insincere. It was provoked primarily by danger, and it was a concession. Okay, fine, God, we'll give this up, but as soon as the danger was present, or wasn't present anymore, they just took him back, okay? That was enough. One of the things that God regularly and consistently points to in mattering in repentance is motive. In fact, Paul talks about godly sorrow and the sorrow of this world. Okay? The sorrow of this world we experience when we encounter the consequences of our sin or the discipline of God or even God's judgment and what we are mourning ultimately is that we got caught. What we're mourning ultimately is the consequences of our behavior. But godly sorrow mourns the behavior itself. And he says that's a repentance not to be repented of. That's one that's so true and so deep, even if there's a relenting in the difficulties, the heart doesn't change. Because the heart was uh, turned away from the sin and not just hates the consequence. 
but Israel was just avoiding the consequence. Again, we get this glimpse and we go, maybe now they're finally getting it. In the 11th hour, maybe Judah has finally wrapped their head around what's necessary, but it was just a facade. And it's proved just by a little relenting, just a little holding back. So, verse 17, he proclaims them freedom to judgment. Verse 18, and the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of my covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. Okay. In the ancient world, and we see this all the way back in the days of Abraham in Genesis 15, up to here in Jeremiah 34, one of the ways that they would make a covenant is that they would divide animals in half, and then the promise makers would walk through the area between the animals together. And we're pretty sure the message is basically, if I don't keep up my end of the bargain, may I end up like these animals. This is the same message that God uses to finally make clear to Abraham when Abraham goes, but how will I know that you'll give me a son? And he goes, okay, fine, let's cut a covenant. Let's do the same thing you do with another human being. Let's do it. And God takes that and he transforms it because Abraham doesn't walk through the animals, does he? Only God alone in the, you know, in the image of fire walks through and he says, I'm going to do this. This is on my shoulders. But here, Israel's done the same thing. They've cut a covenant. They've said, you know, um, the equivalent in the ancient world of may lightning strike my dead, me dead if I break this promise. And then they broke their promise. And he says, so be it. Let it be. He says, you're going to end up just like these animals. Verse 20, I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Side note, that's what happens in Genesis 15, right? Abraham keeps having to shoo away the birds uh, from the corpses. Verse 21, and Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials I will give into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon who has withdrawn from you. Behold, I will command, declares the Lord, and will bring them back to this city, and they will fight against it, and take it, and burn it with fire, and I'll make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. And so we see here what may, again, we've seen so many times in Jeremiah, might be repentance, but it's proven to be shallow uh, and unreal. Okay. Now moving on to chapter 35, uh, we are introduced here to the Rechabites, a small religious sect that's existing in the Judean area and is Jewish in its background. Um, and, and they are made an illustration. It's another prophetic parable, but this time not acted out by Jeremiah, but illustrated um, from these religious fanatics. Okay, chapter 35, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim. Okay, so we're jumping back in the timeline. Not the days of Zedekiah, but the king that was prior to him. In the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, verse 2, go to the house of the Rechabites and speak with them and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers and then offer them wine to drink. Okay. And so he goes to this place where all the Rechabites are living. And as we'll see, it's not actually their house. It's their temporary dwelling because in the days of Jehoiakim, just like we were reading in the days of Zedekiah, the city is under siege. Okay. 
Uh, and so this is the second time Babylon comes in to deal with the uprising of Jehoiakim. And it's going to lead to Jehoiakim and his mom and all of his officials and all the merchants and all the upper class of Jerusalem being carried away. Okay? This is a few decades before Zedekiah. Okay? Um, and so the Rechabites who are hanging out in Jerusalem, because again, the, the area that they'd usually live in uh, has been trampled, so they're inside the siege. He says, go to their house, bring them to the temple, and then say, have a drink of wine. Verse 3, so I took Jazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habaz, uh, Habazaniah, and his brothers and all his sons and the whole house of the Rechabites, and I brought them to the house of the Lord into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdala, the man of God, which was near the chamber of the officials, above the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalom, keeper of the threshold. Okay, there's a lot of names there. There's only two two things that you got to nail down. One is that this chamber belongs to a particular guy who's identified here as the man of God. Okay? He's a faithful guy who lives at the temple because he's devoted his life to God. Okay? But also, it's right in the area of, um, of Shalom, okay? the keeper of the threshold. He is the temple overseer. His job uh, is to maintain order of the temple, and so he is the public witness of what's about to happen. This is the audience that's going to be going to King Jehoiakim, for example, and saying, hey, I've got to tell you what just went down at the temple. Okay. So it's a public event, verse 5, then I set before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said to them, drink wine. But they answered, we will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us. Now, Jonadab, we know, he was one of the people who, along with Jehu, brought about this uh, revolution and, uh, and restored the kingdom of Israel away from Ahab and Jezebel. Okay? So this is, once again, quite a long time ago, but here we're told that in the midst of this uh, household purge, he also commanded all of his descendants to live a particular way, which included total abstinence from wine. But also, he says, our father commanded us, you shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons forever, you shall not build a house, you shall not sow seed, nor plant or have a vineyard, but you shall live in tents all your days, that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. So their practice as a family, as commanded by Jonadab, was drink no alcohol, but also not to be farmers or landowners or house builders, but to be nomads and tent dwellers. Okay. Now, we're not actually given the reasons why this was the case. Maybe they felt like Israel was so off track that this was a way to you know, prophetically live out their lives like the monastic community does to a degree, to point to how far away things had fallen. Maybe he was looking into the old ways of Israel and, and uh, over-elevated Exodus and Numbers and was like, we need to go back to being a wilderness people instead of being a land people. We're not told. Actually, Jeremiah is not interested in the religious practices of the Rechabites at all. What he's interested in is their commitment to follow the religious practices that this random guy, Jonadab, their, their ancestor, had laid out. And so, uh, verse 10, sorry, verse 9, not to build houses to dwell in. We have no vineyards or field or seed, but we've lived in tents and have obeyed and done all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. 
But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against the land, we said, come and let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and the army of the Syrians, so we're living in Jerusalem. He goes, I know you found us at the house of the Rechabites. It's not our house. We're renting it because of the siege, and so we're living here temporarily. But our practice is to not have a home and to stay in a tent. Okay? Then, verse 12, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, go and say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will you not receive instruction and listen to my word, declares the Lord? The command that Jonadab, the son of Rechab, gave to his sons to drink no wine has been kept. And they drink none to this day, for they've obeyed their father's command. I've spoken to you persistently, but you have not listened to me. You see what he's saying here? He's saying all of these guys are faithful to just their father's wishes, their father's 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 wishes. None of them have broken it. They've all maintained it. And yet I, the one who, you know, gave you everything, the one who brought you into the land, I, you've not been faithful to me. It's an illustration of contrast, okay? And so verse 15, I've sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently saying, turn now every one of you from his evil way and amend your deeds and do not go after other gods to serve them. And then you shall dwell in the land that I will give you and your fathers, but you did not incline your ear or listen to me. The sons of Jonadab, the sons of Rechab have kept the command their father gave them, but this people has not obeyed me. Notice here, he basically says, you know, these, uh, these kind of semi-cultish fundamentalists put Israel to shame. Because Israel worships the one true God, and they don't have the commandments of some man, but the commandments of God written with a heavenly finger, right? And yet they won't keep the covenant. Verse 17, therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I'm bringing upon Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disaster that I've pronounced against them because I've spoken to them and they have not listened. I've called to them and they have not answered. The consequence of unfaithfulness is judgment. And then notice he also decides to reward uh, the Rechabites. And so he says here in verse 18, but to the house of the Rechabites, Jeremiah said, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you've obeyed the command of Jonadab, your father, and kept all his precepts and done all that he's commanded you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall never lack a man to stand before me. Again, notice there, he doesn't sanction the behavior or the decisions uh, or, or the commitments of the Rechabites, what he rewards them for is their faithfulness in contrast to Israel's unfaithfulness. Okay, and that completes the image. In other words, there's an implicit blessing here. It could be different, Israel. You could obey, and then there would be blessings. All right, let's finish with chapter 36 tonight. Now, again, we are in the days of Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim may very well be the king who was the most hostile against the ministry of Jeremiah. I know in the days of Zedekiah we find him in jail, but Jehoiakim, as we'll see tonight, it's even more intense. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I've spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day that I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah until today. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I might forgive them their iniquity and sin. 
Okay, so notice here, the ongoing, decades-long preaching ministry of Jeremiah that has been a constant presence, he says, I want you to write it all down. Put it all in a single scroll, and maybe all together, all at once, you know, um, uh, what do we call that? Um, it's a high dosage, right? It's full strength, Jeremiah, in a single capsule, right, in this scroll. Maybe they'll hear that. And so he does so, verse 4, Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord that he'd spoken to them. Now, we've encountered Baruch beforehand. He came up just a little while ago. He'll show up. He ends up being kind of Jeremiah's number two, and he operates in this story as Jeremiah's scribe. He's the one who writes down as Jeremiah dictates this whole scroll, and we're pretty sure he's the one who continues to maintain it. When it's destroyed, we'll see. He rewrites it, and, uh, and probably he's the best explanation of how we get from the ministry of Jeremiah to the book of Jeremiah that we're reading right now. Okay, um, But... Uh, we also believe that Baruch is of the upper echelons of Jewish society and maybe even has a role in the government. At the very least, he's from a respectable family. He has natural access to places, uh, and he's going to bemoan how hard his life is when he aligns it with Jeremiah, so he has something to lose. But he writes it down as he was supposed to, verse 5, Then Jeremiah ordered Baruch, saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord. So you are to go, and on a day of fasting in the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out of their cities. So he says, I want you to wait till the next national fast day. Then I want you to take the scroll into the temple and read it aloud all day long so that all of Judea from all of the cities who are present in the city for the fast will hear these words. Okay. He also points out here that he can't do it himself because he's not allowed in the temple at this point. And so he sends his word and Baruch to read it in his place. Um, and so verse 17, it may be that the plea for mercy will come before the Lord and everyone will turn from his evil way for great is the anger and wrath that the Lord has pronounced against the people. And Baruch the son of Neriah did all that Jeremiah the prophet ordered him about reading from the scroll in the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. In the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. Okay, so this is the next year. If I remember right, this is at least seven months later, okay, that he finally gets an opportunity to execute this. And fasts are not very common in Israel. The only one that's written as a uh, religious um, practice for them is the Day of Atonement. But also remember here that Jehoiakim is facing Babylon and there's a siege going on. So maybe it takes this long until Jehoiakim calls a fast as a sign of mourning. And so it's a good opportunity for Jeremiah's message to be read. So he goes, in the ninth month, all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah, Jerusalem, proclaimed a fast before the Lord. Then in the hearing of all the people, Baruch read the words of Jeremiah from the scroll in the house of the Lord, in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, the secretary, which was in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. Now, the author here, Again, probably Baruch is doing something intentional. He mentions here the uh, chamber of Jeremiah and that he is the son of Shaphan and that this scroll is read in the temple because going back to the days of Josiah, it is a scroll that's found in the temple and Shaphan is the secretary 
of Josiah who hears it from the guy who finds it, okay? And so basically what we have here is a parallel of the early story. The word of God is found in the days of Josiah and it leads to reform. But what about when the word of God is found in the days of Jehoiakim? That's the question that we should be asking right now. And so he goes and he reads it, verse 11, when Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, so his grandson, heard all the words of the Lord from the scroll, he went down to the king's house, into the secretary's chamber, and all the officials were sitting there, Elishama the secretary, Deliah the son of Shemaiah, Elnathan the son of Akbar, Gemariah the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah the son of Hananiah, and all the officials. Just like in the days of Josiah, before it goes before the king, it goes before his cabinet, okay? And so they hear it first, but notice their response here. And Micaiah told them all the words that he'd heard when Baruch read the scroll in the hearing of the people. Then all the officials sent Jehudi, the son of Netaniah, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Cushi, to say to Baruch, take in your hand the scroll that you read in the hearing of the people and come. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the scroll in his hand and it came to them. And they said to him, sit down and read it. So Baruch read it to them. When they heard all the words, they turned to one another in fear. Now at first reading, we go, that's good. Right? That was the hope. Maybe they would be afraid of all the words of the wrath that God is going to bring about and they would respond in fear. But what are they afraid of here? Listen to what they say. Uh, and they said to Baruch, we must report all these words to the king. Then they asked Baruch, tell us please, how did you write all these words? Was it at his dictation? Baruch answered them, he dictated all the words to me while I wrote them with ink on the scroll. Then the official said to Baruch, go and hide, you and Jeremiah, and let no one know where you are. Okay, so the first question they want to know is, okay, is this peripheral to Jeremiah's ministry? Is this one of Jeremiah's disciples that's gone rogue? No, this is officially the word of Jeremiah, the constantly proven prophet, the hated by King Jehoiakim Jeremiah. And he goes, you should probably get out of Dodge. You should probably make yourself scarce and don't tell anyone where you are. We'll keep the scroll, okay? Now we're starting to see what they're really afraid of. They're not afraid of the judgment. They're afraid of Jehoiakim's response. They're about to be the proverbial bearers of bad news and they know that the messenger might get shot, okay? So they put Jeremiah and Baruch in safekeeping and then they come up with a plan. They go, okay, we need a way to do this that's tactful so that we keep our heads so, verse 20, they went into the court of the king, having put the scroll in the chamber of Elishama the secretary, and they reported all the words to the king. Do you see what they don't do? They don't just say, hey, you got to read this and hand over the scroll. They start with a report. Hey, you know, Jeremiah wrote this scroll, and Baruch's been reading it in the temple. Do you see what they're doing? They're feeling the king out. And notice how he responds, verse 21. And then the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishama the secretary, and Jehuda read it to the king and all the officials who stood behind, beside the king. Now, what happens in the days of Josiah when the scroll is read to the king? Repentance. What happens in the days of Jehoiakim when the scroll is read? It was 22, the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. And Jehudi read three or four columns as the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. So in the days of Josiah, he encounters the word of the Lord and he tears his garments in repentance. But Jehoiakim encounters the word of the Lord and he tears it into pieces and throws it into the fire. 
His plan here is to destroy the message just as he tried to destroy the messenger. He's not afraid of the words. He's the one in power. He's the one with the penknife. He can just edit these things away and burn them to dust. Yet, verse 24, neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. It's not just the king. All of his officials, they were afraid of the king. They were not afraid of the judgment that God prophesied in this scroll. Even when Elnathan and Deliah and Gemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. They are, at the very least, a little superstitious. Just like earlier when Jeremiah was kept from death because they went, well, we can disagree with him, but if we kill him and he's innocent, that's blood on our hands. Here they go, could you not burn the scroll? Maybe you should just, just ignore it instead of actively attacking it, right? Um, they're worried about that, but he doesn't listen. Verse 26, the king commanded Jeremiel, the king's son, and Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shemamiah, the son of Abdiel, to seize Baruch, the secretary of Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord hid him. Now, I think that's really interesting because they hid themselves, but they stayed hidden because God is in this. And just as he promised to Jeremiah and will eventually promise to Baruch, he's going to protect them. Okay? But that's not where the story ends. Verse 27, now after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, take another scroll and write on it the former words that were in the first scroll which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you shall say, thus says the Lord, you've burned the scroll, saying, why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will cut it off, cut off from it man and beast? Therefore... Thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit on his throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of day and the frost of night. Like Moses at Mount Sinai, right, who receives the word of the Lord, and then in anger at the orgiastic party and the idolatry of Israel breaks it upon the ground, and then another is made in its place. Even the sins of Israel don't break the words of God. And here, even the destruction of Jehoiakim of the scroll doesn't break the word of God. Remember what Jeremiah said earlier? Isn't my word like a hammer that breaks? Okay. His word will not be broken. Instead, it's going to be Jehoiakim and his line that's going to be broken against the word of God. Verse 31, I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring upon them and upon their inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disaster that I've pronounced against them, but they would not hear. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and many similar words were added to them. That gets us a lot closer to the book we have now, right? Because Jeremiah's uh, ministry continues past the fourth year of Jehoiakim. And so here we get to this place. But notice what this is. This is an expression of the fact that the word of God will continue, that it will last, that it will not be destroyed. Jehoiakim thinks he can get rid of Jeremiah's influence and his ministry and even the veritable word of God by just destroying it in a fire. But here we have it in our hands. God's word lasts, even though it's been one of the most controversial and even hated books throughout history and has been burned and destroyed and eradicated and made illegal and outlawed, it still prevails because God's word is part of his big plan. 
This doesn't just record the plan of God's redemption. It's part of the plan of God's redemption because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so the enemies who stand against the word of God may fall, but the words of God will never fail. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that truth and the benefit that your word is to us, even through the ministry of Jeremiah, Lord, that it was not destroyed by his enemies and the animosity even of your own people, Lord, but was preserved, rewritten and expanded, passed down, and we can hold it in our hands, and we can read it and hear the word of the Lord, and we can recognize that this is not just a record of what God has spoken. Because it is your powerful word through the ministry of your spirit, it is you, a way that you still speak today. I pray that we would treat it as such and that we would be closer to the Rechabites, Lord, who would hear your word and respond in faithfulness. But more important than that, Lord, we're drawn back to the beginning of where we started tonight, Lord, which wasn't about our faithfulness, but yours. And that your great plan will prevail. And that's good news for us because your great plan is full of great and precious promises. And we need all of them. And so we praise you for all of them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a good night.